Uh, it's my, my joy to welcome and introduce Paul McConaughey to us. Um, you may be familiar with the, the names of uh, Mike Breen and Paul McConaughey and the 3DM Network and uh, Thomas Crook Church, Philadelphia Church, all that's happening in Sheffield and the tremendous things that have been happening with missional communities and uh, disciple making and all sorts of things like that. That may be familiar to many of you, maybe kind of only just sort of names that you've heard to, to, to others of you. But I just wanted to say, because this is the first time Paul's been among us, that I, probably two years ago now, I think God connected us through a mutual friend and we uh, it was during one of my January sort of months out when I go and sort of um, take some time to study and pray and seek God and meet new people. I went up to Sheffield to meet Paul and um, yeah, we just felt a little, I kind of, just something in God, just a connection and cut a long story short. Ever since then, for the last couple of years, we've been um, doing an online huddle with a number of other network leaders, different sort of denomination, denomination streams. Every two weeks, I think we've been doing that. Just kind of uh, coaching, strengthening, helping each other. And I honestly have to say, uh, Paul's becoming a really dear friend, and I, I think there's an anointing on him to bring something into our midst at just this time. There, there's something of the, the a, a real gifting and anointing in God in all that 3DM have been doing, and I, I'm so thrilled that providentially it's worked out. He can be here. He, he lives in the States now, as he'll probably tell you a little bit about that, but it just so happened he's just kind of come in from, literally from San Francisco you know, 24 hours ago, so, you know, he's really made an effort to be here, and I, I just want to commend him to you. I also want to say, if you go up into the, um, the zones, uh, that we've got some of the 3DM materials here, the building a discipling culture, the uh, multiplying missional leaders, and then the very big launching missional communities. If you're really serious about looking for us, uh, you know, helpful tools to put practical disciple-making in church life, I, I honestly say these are amongst the best materials I've ever seen. It's not just about technique. It's about the values and the philosophy that go behind it. And one of the things I like about Paul is that he's not so much kind of trying to sell a system. He's trying to help people mature and grow in Christ. And I just love that about them. I love that about their passion to see people grow and be released in their gifting. So I believe he's here just the right time for us. And I'm trusting that God will kind of bring something into the mix that we can then, um, you know, work out in our own family and our own values and our own ways in different places where we're working. So uh, I really want to uh, ask us to give a fantastic relational mission welcome to Paul McConaughey this evening. Great. Well, thank you, Mike. That was a, that was a great uh, introduction. Very kind. It's really good to be with you guys. Um, if I start speaking incoherently partway through the talk, or if I fall asleep partway through the talk, it's because I'm very jet-lagged, so you'll have to forgive me and um, uh, assume that it's, uh, it's time to do some praying or something, uh, and uh, we'll see how we go. It's really exciting to be with you, and um, it's weird. As we've been doing 3DM stuff, so 3DM is basically a kind of training and coaching organization that helps churches to transition cult the, the culture of the church into much more of a discipleship and missional kind of culture, and one where people aren't just relying on the, the minister at the front or whatever, but they're actually taking responsibility themselves for the sense of calling that God's given them. And so we're working with lots of churches, um, hundreds and hundreds of churches actually around the world now, um, in Europe, um, Australia, um, here in, in the UK and in uh, the US mainly. And um, and, and uh, one of the things that's happened in the UK is that I just keep running into um, 
churches and leaders who've come out of uh, New Frontiers. And I think, I think that um, what's happened is that there's a kind of convergence because what we're trying to do really is about, it's about um, learning to do mission properly. It's about learning to do um, community properly. It's about learning to engage more fully with the Word of God and to engage more fully with the Holy Spirit. And so there's an awful lot in common there, isn't there? And, uh, and so we keep running into each other and I've um, connected with some of the other um, New Frontiers networks as well. And, um, but particularly for Mike and I, we've just found a, a real friendship over the last couple of years and it just feels like we come from two different streams. I'm a Baptist by background and that's, that's where I come from. Um, but it, it feels as if it's the same move of God, it's the same stuff God's saying. We've basically just got really excited as we've been sharing together. So I feel really honored to come and uh, be with you guys. I'll just, uh, just to give you a couple of minutes just about myself, so that you, um, just to introduce myself. I'm married to Ellie, I've got two daughters, Grace, who is 17 on Monday, and Hannah, who's 14. And, um, and uh, we were in Sheffield for, um, uh, Ellie and I were in Sheffield for about just over 20 years. Um, I, was a, I was a secondary school teacher, a chemistry teacher uh, to start with, and then uh, we met because we were worship leaders in the church, um, you know, uh, on a voluntary basis. And then, and then this, this new minister turned up. This, um, he was a, uh, it's, a, it's an Anglican and Baptist church, that church in Sheffield, so it's kind of a weird mix. Um, and this was the new rector turned up, Mike Breen. And he started talking about mission and communities and this idea that people should take responsibility for seeking God for a vision for mission and should start living out, not just in small Bible study groups, which is what we'd had up until that time, but, but a sense that we should be um, trying to learn how to live in extended families where we're really, we're really um, not just uh, talking about being brothers and sisters, but we're actually living it out. And I think, you know, I think when we, when we begin to learn about our identity in Christ, we sometimes focus a lot on the fact that we're sons and daughters, and that's a big deal, isn't it? When you first start walking as a Christian, learning that, you know, your, your father has adopted you and it's given him great pleasure, it's a great thing. And when you, when you really mature you start learning that you're called to be mothers and fathers as well, and you're called to raise up others. But sometimes you miss the brothers and sisters bit in the middle. And um, that, was something, that was something that he was bringing. And, and so um, Ellie and I decided that we'd turn our worship um, meetings into um, uh, what, what we now call missional community. We'd eat together, we'd pray together, we'd study scripture together, but also we'd have a, a mission and I, we had a very low bar mission uh, because we weren't very good in our church at mission. So our mission was just welcome the stranger. And, um, and we, just, we just looked for people who, who looked as if they were left out and um, ended up seeing some real breakthrough. And um, over, a, over a, a few months and then over about 18 months, um, this community grew and then we had to learn how to multiply and it grew again and multiplied again. And, and um, we saw a lot of people come to faith uh, surprisingly to us, a lot of them were um, uh, heroin addicts and prostitutes, which wasn't quite what we'd imagined uh, when we started. Um, I guess if you're going to welcome people on the margins, then um, you'd probably need to think through your mission if that's not what you expect to get. And, um, and, then, and then on the back of that, then I was asked to come in, be part of the staff team at the church there. Um, because uh, Mike's philosophy was that um, if people were called to lead church, then they would. And if they didn't, there's no point in saying that they were called to do it if they weren't actually doing it. And so he felt that there was a call there. And, uh, and then about four years later, 2004, he left to start 3DM in the States, and I became the leader of that church and led the, led the church, St. Thomas's Church, Philadelphia, for um, 10 years. And um, we kind of crashed and burned for a couple of years. 
um, I, I feel like I carry a message in, in kind of who I am, in that um, Mike, the guy who trained me and mentored me, um, kind of looks like a mega church leader. You know, he's six foot five, piercing gaze, booming voice. I mean, just look at him and think, yeah, he's supposed to lead a mega church. And then he left and went to America, and then kind of, you know, dumpy Paul, who was the chemistry teacher, took over. And everybody said, it's just going to crash and burn. And then for the first couple of years, it pretty much did. So everyone was kind of, you know, patting themselves on the back, I guess. And um, I ended up getting quite ill. Uh, it was a very stressful time. And while I was in hospital, the Lord really started to speak to me and, and really made it clear that I was trying to copy the last guy and we needed to do something new. And, we, and, and over time, we began to get breakthrough. And from about 2007 to when I left in 2014, um, we, this is in, I mean, Sheffield is a really low church attendance city. It's about 2.5%, I think. And so it's, it's not, it's a pretty hostile environment in many ways to the gospel. But um, uh, during that time, we saw, on average, about 300 people a year come to the Lord, year in, year out. And it wasn't happening through, um, so, you know, great central teaching or anything. Um, it, was, it was happening because there'd been a culture that had grown, a discipleship culture in the church, where everyday women and everyday men were standing up and taking responsibility and saying, this is the call God's given us, and we're going to give our lives to it. And um, we saw some really amazing things during that time. We saw, um, when, 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 we, when we, uh, my wife and I first started uh, leading the church there, we had about 80 um, teenagers in the youth work. And um, about halfway through that time, um, maybe kind of about 2006, so 2007 maybe, 2008, uh, some of the young adults just felt that God was calling them to start moving on to the housing estates to reach the youth there. There's quite a big gang problem in Sheffield. And um, they just thought, I don't think we're going to reach these kids unless we move in. You know? And they, they would get several houses together. And uh, we were spending a lot of time in, um, at that time. A lot of you, I'm sure, will know um, the Message Trust guys and Andy Hawthorne and those folks in Manchester. We were spending a lot of time talking with them and looking together at, at this kind of idea of people living, moving into community and places. And... Um, and uh, that was really, really um, amazing over the next few years. We, ended, we started with 80. Um, about seven years later, we had 800 um, teenagers in every week attending um, groups where they're being overtly discipled in following Jesus. And it was, it was an amazing thing to watch. And it was great when we got, we felt like we'd seen the real cycle of fruit there when we began to have youth leaders who'd come in through the children's work and gone all the way through the system off the off the council estates who didn't have any Christian background and then they're becoming youth leaders themselves. So we had a great time and uh, lots of good things and of course lots of battles as well, lots of difficult things in there. Um, but the, the, the heartbeat of it all, and I think this is why um, we've connected, or I've connected with you guys, is um, it's really about you know, living the gospel and we're asking the question, how can we change the world by um, imitating Jesus? Uh, we don't just want to talk about Jesus, we want, to, we want to copy him. We want him to speak to us, we want to listen to him, we want to do what he tells us. But, um, but as we look at the life of Jesus, we're saying, well, what would that look like if we do it in 21st century Britain? I mean, what does it look like to actually copy him? Um, now, when I, when I prepared this um, talk, um, I didn't realize that you guys were doing words, works, and wonders. So, unfortunately, I, I had three W's of my own, which are very similar so you'll just have to kind of uh, make a slight adjustment there. But for me, uh, this is in three main areas that I really wanted us to think about. I want to think about um, the words of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, and the works of Jesus. I guess 
When I say the works, I mean the wonders as well. It's all part of the works of Jesus. Yeah. Um, but I do it with a triangle. We tend to use the um, we tend to use a um, a triangle a lot in 3DM. It's also why we call 3DM. It's three-dimensional ministries because we're trying to everything we do. We're trying to embrace the great commandment and the great commission, and the two things together. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength up. Love your neighbors yourself in go and make disciples out. So it's this three-dimensional kind of life. And, um, and uh, we, we'd recognize that most of us tend towards two out of the three. I, I don't know why that is. It's just something we've noticed over the years. Almost everybody seems to tend towards two out of the three. Just have a little think. What would be the two that you tend towards? Are you an up-and-in person? I don't know. You can even see it in different, in different traditions, can't you? Like, you know, the evangelical charismatic traditions tended to be up and in, great at worship, great at community stuff. Mission, well, we, we kind of talk about it, you know. If you look at some other traditions, you look at, for example, the social gospel tradition, they're really great at mission. It's usually mercy mission stuff, but they're really great at it. They get stuck in, usually really good at community. Um, the thing is, they forget about God, which is kind of important, you know. And there's other traditions, aren't there? Some, you know, you'll get um, maybe some of the, um, you'll maybe get some of the um, traditions that do um, up and out but aren't so good at community. Maybe that's in some of the more conservative um, uh, traditions. But, um, but, but uh, we're trying to do all, all of those. And, um, and uh, if, we're going to, if we're going to imitate Jesus, we need to read and study what he said, his words. We need to imitate his way of life how did he do it? What's, what were the choices? What were the lifestyle choices that Jesus made? Um, and somehow we've got to kind of uh, translate that, haven't we, from a single rabbi living in first century Israel to us now, whatever situation we're in. <coughs> Excuse me. But we're trying to copy his way of life. And then what are the things that he did? What are the works that he did? And I just want to dig into that a little bit um, this evening with you. And... Um, and I'm going to tell just a few stories, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see how we do. So um, I, let's just start with the words of Jesus, shall we? And um, I really like this, this passage, Mark, Mark 1, 14 and 15, because it's, it's, it's Jesus' kind of opening statement when he starts his earthly ministry. He's um, just been in the desert. He's just done battle with Satan, and he's just defeated him. He went into the desert, says Luke, full of the Holy Spirit. He came out of the desert in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then this is the next thing that he does. It says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And, um, and if you're thinking about what that means, and those of you who know 3DM stuff, you might be familiar with this. We use this all the time. It's a really important passage for us. If you look at the, the language that, that, um, that the gospel is originally written in, in the Greek there, um, it's quite interesting because uh, there are some interesting words that he says. He says, um, the time is now, he's talking about, the word is kairos, not chronos. It's not tick, 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 it's the right moment, hang on now. It's not that. Kairos is about, is about a, a moment that, that impacts you, that, that catches your attention. It's something that stops you thinking about the other things. So he's saying the time's now, God's getting your attention. The, the, kingdom, um, the kingdom of God has come near. Basileus, the rule of God. God's rule has come near. That's what he's saying. And he says this, repent and believe. Repent is metanoia, and it means change and grow the way you think. 
Um, as a Baptist growing up, I thought repent meant stop sinning. But um, it is part of the word, but it's one little bit of a much bigger word. Change and grow the way you think. Jesus is telling us that we need to learn to think his way instead of thinking our way. Um, Jesus, you know, needed some money for a temple tax, so he went fishing. I mean, he thought in a completely different way to us, didn't he? Um, and then he says, believe the good news, and the word in the Greek is pisteo, which, which in old translations of the Bible is translated believe on rather than believe in. It, it doesn't mean you agree with it in your head. It means you step out on it. Yeah, put your weight on it, like we're putting our weight on the chairs we're sitting on. Put your weight on it. Change and expand the way you think and, and step out in faith. And, um, you know, some of us are better at the, the changing of the mind thing. Some of us are better at acting, acting out, going and doing it. But we all need to do both. And um, we went through this process, my wife and I, um, with, um, in, in several areas, and I'm sure you guys have done it, but um, changing the way we think and stepping out in faith was uh, particularly something for us that we felt God was calling us to do with money. When, uh, when the church, when I'd taken over leading the church and I'd just come out of being ill, I was just going back into leading the church and, um, and uh, the finances were really dire. In fact, I remember that year I had a £100,000 deficit on the budget was my first task on coming back from hospital. It's like, oh good, <laughs> this is going to be great. And, um, and uh, it, was, it was concerning and giving had dropped substantially as well. People weren't, I didn't feel like there had been breakthrough in our, in our church in terms of people understanding generosity and faith. And um, we were trying to work out what to do. And at the same time, Ellie, my wife, was feeling, beginning to feel a bit fed up. We were, for the first time in our lives, we had a reasonable, we had a reasonable income. We were living in a nice house that the church had given us. And... Um, she was feeling, I, I don't think I was made for this. Um, she's pretty hardcore, my wife. She, she, um, when she was a student, she went with Campus Crusade, uh, Agape as it is now. She, she went and um, did lots of mission stuff. And they, one of the things they did was they went on trips to Russia. The Iron Curtain was just coming down. They were smuggling Bibles into Russia. She, she totally loved it. And she learned Russian while she was at university. She did music at university, but she learned Russian. And she was planning to go to be a full-time missionary. And then at the last minute... Um, the Lord clearly said to her that she wasn't to go and uh, sent her back to Sheffield. And while, she, while she'd been away, I'd become really good friends with all of her friends. And, so, and then when she came back, I was a worship leader in the church and she became a worship leader too. And suddenly we're spending all this time together and we ended up getting married. So I'm glad that she didn't go off to Russia at that point. But what she was saying was, I signed up. I haven't signed up to be part of just running some church. I've signed up to be a missionary and if I'm going to lead the church I, with you, Paul, we have to do it as missionaries. I mean, we had a conversation on our first date that we, both of us were saying, look, we're called to be missionaries, is that okay with you? And we both agreed it. And, um, and she's saying, we've got to act it out. So I said, well, what would you have done, Ellie, if you'd gone to Russia? What would you have done? She said, well, to start with, we, were, we would have had no money and we would have lived probably in community with the rest of the team until we'd sorted out what we were doing and then gradually we would have worked out how we were working. But... Um, but she said, I feel like we need to remind ourselves that we're missionaries. And so we talked about it and prayed about it. And what we decided to do was we decided to um, move into community with some other folks. So we moved into a ch big church house, um, another family, with a, another couple with a child. We had two children and then two single adults. So there were nine of us, including kids, in a five-bedroom house with a single bathroom, which was interesting in the mornings. And, um, and what we felt was, just for a short time, in the end we felt maybe about six months or so, we're, gonna, we're going to see 
we're going to step out on the Word of God. Uh, we didn't feel we'd had a particular kind of call from God to do this, but it was just a general Word of God. But we, th- we thought we're going to step out on it because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you don't have to worry about what you'll wear or what you'll eat. Um, if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything you need will be given to you. So we, so we said what we're going to do is we're going to give all of our money away, everything. We got paid and we just put the check straight back. We sent the money straight back to the church. It was good, great because we had a financial review with the bank during that time period. And uh, it was great watching the guy trying to work out how our finances worked. He said, so let me get this straight. You get paid, yes, and then you give the money straight back to the church, yes. And he went, oh, no wonder they got money in that church. It was, it was funny. But anyway, so we did that, and um, we went on this journey. And um, do you know, it's great telling these stories of faith later, isn't it, when you've come through it, you know? <laughs> At the time, it was absolutely horrendous. It was terrible. In fact, my wife, who was the one who had the idea in the first place, cried every single day for six months. Every single day she cried. I remember the low point was on a Sunday. I had to go because I was preaching at the church on the Sunday. She was crying. I said, look, Ellie, I want to comfort you, but I've got to go. I have to go now. I've got to preach. And she said, well, if we're going to carry on doing this, you're just going to have an unhappy wife. So just get used to it. This is what I'm going to be like. And then I had to go and preach a sermon. It was like, oh, great. Today's, you know, today's passage is the joy of the Lord is my strength. So, um, so that's all going on. It was really tough. And, and, and every time we needed some money, we, we, um, we, it certainly made us pray. I mean, we're just asking God, please give us some money, God. We've got a bill that's come in. We've got the red bill that's come in. Um, the only thing that we'd said to God is, if we ever start going into debt, for example, if there's a bill that we can't pay, we'll assume that that means it's time to stop because you say in your word, Lord, don't let any debt remain outstanding except the debt to love. So, We'll assume that if, you know, we assume we've got it covered. The Bible says that we can do this. But, um, but we'll assume if we, if we start going into debt, then that clearly you don't want us to do it because, so you need to keep us out of debt. That was, that was what we said to the Lord. And when we started doing this as a household, it, I felt a lot of pressure because I was the kind of minister. And so all the other people in the house were kind of looking to me to have the faith for it. And um, I remember I, I went for a walk um, along by a river. And I was just praying about it, and I was feeling really, you know, really under pressure. And I said to God, God, I think I'd have faith, faith for myself and my family for this that you'd provide. But seven people, uh, sorry, nine people in the house, I, I mean, that's an awful lot of money every day. I don't think I've got enough faith for nine people. And, um, and it's one of the few times in my life that I've really been certain the Lord was speaking to me. It wasn't audible, it was in my head, but there was an immediate answer, and the Lord said, it's not about your faith, it's about my faithfulness. And isn't that interesting? Because immediately my faith went straight back up again. Because, I mean, faith's no good if you put it in the wrong thing, is it? It's got to be in God. I was trying to have faith in myself. And um, I think the enemy had me on that have faith in your faith cycle. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no, no thanks, just look back at God. And um, so we went on this journey, and we, um, we kept any money that we had, we had in common. We'd share it. We, um, we said anyone who needs the money gets the first call on it for the first need. So there was one low point when we had 15 pounds. We didn't have, hadn't yet bought dinner for that evening, but one of the people in the house had booked a hairdressing appointment mid-afternoon. So they had to take the 15 pounds, and we had to trust God. That was hard. That we did it, but there was a lot of murmuring under kind of our breath, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then when, when she came back, 
But the church, by the way, didn't know we were doing this because they would have just been kind to us. We, didn't, we hadn't told people we were doing this. When she came back from the hairdresser's appointment, somebody had hung a bag of vegetables from their allotment on our front door. And so we had a meal that evening. And actually, during the six months, we didn't miss a single bill and we didn't miss a single meal. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting because it's what the Bible says. But, you know, I mean, we don't often step out on what the Bible says, do we? And, um, and uh, it all came down in the end to Christmas. Um, God had given us money for gifts and things. Everybody else had left and gone to their parents. And we were the only ones um, left in the house because I was preaching on Christmas Day. And um, we didn't have any money for food for the Christmas week. And so it was pretty stressful. And we're praying about it. And then somebody called me up three days before Christmas and said, hey, Paul, have you done your Christmas food shopping um, yet for, your, uh, f- for Christmas? And uh, I said, oh, no, I haven't actually. I tried to keep my voice light, you know. <laughs> no. And, um, and she said, oh, that's great because God's told us to buy all of your food for the whole week. And um, it, they bought it all from Marks and Spencers, which was great. <laughs> do, do you remember the adverts back then? It was like, when I finally did the pre, I, I, in February, we finished at Christmas, after Christmas, and in February I did a seven-week series where I told the church what we'd done and basically preached on faith and generosity and just told them the stories. And when I got to that story, I was able to say, and so God miraculously provided us with a turkey for Christmas, and it wasn't just any turkey. <laughs> Do you remember? It was a hand-raised, hand corn-fed turkey with a whatever, you know. So we, we had that time before, where there's some conflict in our life because our, there, was, there was something missing. We were living our lives, we were trying to be good, but there was something that wasn't in place. And then we had this time that was frankly horrendous, where we learned a lot, but it was really grim. And then we had this experience afterwards, and afterwards I told the church what we'd done, told them the stories, and at the end of the seven-week series, I, I challenged them to take a tithe test. I said, you know, God says we can test him in this. Um, if you uh, if you'll tithe for three months, uh, if you don't see any blessing from the Lord, it might not be financial, it may be spiritual or whatever, it, absolutely nothing, then we ne- I'll never ask you to tithe again. The Lord might, but I won't. And, um, and 400 different families took that test, and one person came back at the end of three months and said they didn't feel there'd been anything, any blessing. And then he came back a week later and said he wasn't right with the Lord. And uh, so it was great. And the following month, <laughs> it's fantastic, the following month, the income of the church, the giving of the church, went up by 90, 90%, 90%. And then it stayed up for a few months, and it began to go back down. And when it leveled out, so it leveled out eventually, it was still 25% up on the year before. So um, it was a spiritual breakthrough for us. It was based on nothing more, really, than just stepping out on the words of Jesus. It's like, either these, either these words are true, in which case, why are we worried? Or they're not true, in which case, why are we Christians? I mean, it's kind of logic, isn't it? Yeah? So, the words of Jesus. Let me, let me just talk to you about the ways of Jesus. The other thing that we did was that we did that in community together. And um, I just want to read to you from Matthew 4, 18 to 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus, the first thing Jesus did when he started his earthly ministry was he did a radical act of obedience to God that that, um, released him 
to operate as a man. I mean, he's God as well, but as a man, it released him to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. He went out into the desert. He, well, first of all, he got baptized. He said, this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness, even though he didn't have anything to be baptized from because he hadn't committed any sin. And then he went into the desert. He faced Satan. He came back in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he built this kind of this, this spiritual power in his life. And then the very next thing he does is he starts building community. If you notice that. And it's a, it's a challenge to us because a lot of what we do in church is organized around keeping ourselves separate from each other. I don't know whether you notice that. Programs are a great way to keep ourselves slightly separate from each other. You know, we, we have our life, we come to church on Sunday, and while we're at church on Sunday, we're brothers and sisters with the brothers and sisters around us. Great. But we don't want to do it for too long because, frankly, they get a bit annoying. And so we go back home and have our life at home, and then we go out on a Wednesday night and we do our our Bible study or some other program or something, and we have two hours of being family together, and then we go back home again. It's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is shared life. Yeah? We like an intervention approach. You know, we want God to bless us, but honestly, we're a bit nervous of him, so we'd like him to bless us from a distance. So what we do is we pay a minister to stand between us and God, and he can go and seek God. He can praying fast, and he can get the blessing, and then he can deliver it to us on a Sunday. And then we get the blessing, but we don't have to get too close to God. You know, we, we, we want to be brothers and sisters, but we use programs and, and, organi- and organized ways of doing these schedules to make sure we don't have to do it all the time. And when it comes to mission, in the traditional sense, I know this isn't true of a lot of the New Frontiers churches, but in lots of churches around this country, we do mission. We want people to know about Jesus. We want people who are marginalized to know the love of Jesus. But frankly, all of those people are a bit scary so what we'll do is we'll be generous and we'll save and we'll give and we'll pay someone else to do it. Yeah, and we, we pay missionaries. And, um, and um, I think all of those things are good. I mean, going to church on Sunday is good. Having a minister is good. You know, giving money to overseas missionaries is good. We should do that. But it's not good if it's replacing life on life. Yeah? And, and we like this interventional approach, kind of love from a distance, I think, I think Jesus would rather we do that than not love at all, but I think he has a preference for incarnation, shared life. And the reason I think it is because it's what he did. If we're following Jesus, it's quite good if we try and copy him, isn't it? Where's your community? Who's your community? When we did this thing with the money, there's absolutely no way we could have done it if it had just been Ellie and me. The fact that there were six adults together and we were all in it together and every time we felt we, we faced an obstacle or we faced a battle or we didn't have the money we needed, we were all praying together, is what kept us strong through that process. And, um, and it was a shared house. It wasn't like it's our house and you're living in our house on our rules. And um, it was really hard, but what we realized was how much we like to control our lives. And when we're in a shared house, we can't control our life. I get back from a long day at work. I'm tired. There's something I've been looking forward to watching on TV and someone's watching something else. Bad luck. You know, suck it up. It's not the end of the world, Paul. Yeah? It's not what it felt like at the time, though, I assure you. <laughs> and um, and uh, since that time, uh, well, since before then, actually, we've, we've chosen to live in community. We've only had one year in 20 years of marriage where we haven't had people living with us. And that was the first year when we went to America last year because we didn't know anybody to live with us. The second year in America, which is this year we've just had, we have had someone living with us. And sometimes we've had one or two or three people living with us. Sometimes we've lived in a shared house. Sometimes we've, sometimes we've had people move next door and we've shared gardens with them and we've done it that way. Why do we do it? Is it because we're kind of, you know, Gen X hippies? No. 
is because we're trying to copy Jesus and it looks to us like that's what Jesus did and therefore that's what we're going to do. And here's what we found. One thing that's really been important for us in raising our girls, who are 17 and 14, are absolutely 100% on fire for the Lord. They're both running at least two discipleship groups each. They, they're, um, they're praying regularly. They're talking about, they, they can tell us who their people of peace are that they're reaching out to. We're praying for those people as a family, people who don't know Jesus. I mean, and why is that? Is it because we're great parents? Not really, honestly. It's because it wasn't all on just us as parents. We made sure that as they grew up, they had an environment where they had multiple adult role models who were totally on fire for Jesus. And so, you know, I remember one time where we were saying, where's Grace and Hannah gone? When they were about eight or nine and we couldn't find them. And it turned out they were up in the bedroom of the, of the young adult intern who was with us. And um, she was teaching them how to soak. They had worship music on and how to how to soak in the Lord, and we're thinking, oh, okay, well, if they're going to disappear, that's a good thing for them to be doing, isn't it, you know? So, so there's this process of um, having our nice life where we're in control, and then seeing something better, and beginning to go into it, and, and hitting a lot of pain and difficulty, and it's just stressful, and it's hard, but then you get to a point where it's, it's just great. And for us now, you know, we were, in a, we were given the church that we're at in America, um, that we're, I'm part of the staff for a day a week on a church in America that helps me as I do the 3DM stuff. And um, they're so generous. And they got us this amazing house. Like it was a huge house on a golf course with half an acre of land with lakes and trees and a community swimming pool. Amazing. It's the American dream. And we lived there and absolutely loved it for about um, six months. And then we began to realize that all the people on the same neighborhood are there because they want privacy. And so we'd go round and we'd say hi and we'd take brownies round and they'd take the brownies and then not really reciprocate in any way. You know, it's okay for you to give us brownies, but we don't really want to have much of a conversation. And then it got to the first winter. We're right up in the north of the US near the Great Lakes, which means they have fantastic summers. I've just missed three months of unbroken sunshine in the mid to high 80s by coming to England. So thanks for the weather, guys. Um, but in the winter, in the winter, it can go down to minus 30 degrees. You can't go out. We had, the first winter we were there, we had six feet of snow. And uh, they have great snow plows and stuff, but even so, I mean, it's, it's not fun. And, um, and we'd been trying to reach our neighbors, and we're having no opportunities. And then we saw all these big, you know, those big American kind of um, uh, motorhomes, RVs, they call them. Well, they started appearing on several of the drives. And we went over to the neighbors and said, um, oh, no, great RV. Um, you know, what are you doing? Like, oh, we'll see you in six months' time. We're heading off to Florida. We don't stay here during the winter. I'm like, really? We, this is before we're the first snow. And then the community association came and put these snow poles in, and they were this high. They're thinking, what is this winter going to be like? But a year later, we haven't had any breakthrough. We've had no breakthrough. We're, we're missionaries. We're there to be missionaries. We haven't been able to bring anyone to the Lord. The only people were our next-door neighbors, and it was a woman who was in her 80s, and we were able to start praying with her. She said she was going to come to church, and then her husband decided they were going to go for the winter to Phoenix, Arizona. So that was the end of that. But because we'd been through this experience of community and going through the pain, we'd gone through this experience of, of, of losing control and, and just doing what we felt God wanted us to do. It's easy for us now in the area of housing. So we just said, okay, we'll move. It's not a problem. We'll just move. And uh, so we said to people in the church, hey, who, who's trying to reach their neighborhood? We feel we want to do neighborhood outreach. Who'd like to do it with us? And there's a great a couple who are friends of ours. I said, we've been trying to do it. We've got some couples who don't know the Lord who are interested, but we're just so busy. And, 
we'd love you to, but the houses never come up for sale in our, in our neighborhood. So he said, well, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to do that. Says, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Let's ask. So Lord, please give us a house in that neighborhood. We, we want to move in. We, we didn't pray for a long time. We prayed for about a week. There hadn't been a house up for sale in that neighborhood since 2009. And a week after we prayed, the house next door to them came up for sale. And it was within range and we were able to get it. And then, within two weeks of us getting that house, the house opposite came up for auction, and another couple from the church said, well, we'll do it too then. So now we've got three couples living within 30 seconds walk of each other, all with a vision to reach the neighborhood. So we've got a knock on all the doors in our street and the street behind us, 50 houses. We know all the names of all the people. We've, um, we had a big event with English cream tea, which the Americans like, in our, in our garden, in our backyard, and about 40 of them turned up, and 15 kids, and we're identifying... You know, in, in Luke 10, Jesus talks about if a person of peace, if a man of peace is there, let your peace rest on him. When he sends the disciples out to, um, to, to tell the good news. And so this idea for us of people of peace is important. Who are the people who welcome us, listen to us, and serve us as we try and reach out to them? And we're identifying as couples who the people of peace are. We think we know. We're going to do a couple of other big events, and then we're going to start inviting them to come and eat with us, to come and share life with us, and we're going to start to disciple them. Um, it wouldn't have been easy for us to just do that, though, just to move at the drop of a hat, just to do something else, if we hadn't have gone through that painful process of kind of dying, really, in ourselves um, and doing the community. And what about, what about the works of Jesus? You know, um, the wonders, as you guys call it. It's a much nicer name, wonders, isn't it? Um, I mean, here's the thing about the works of Jesus. I don't know whether you've noticed, but when you, when you first step out in trying to see something do the kind of things that Jesus did to see something miraculous. Um, generally, well, perhaps this is just me. I mean, I don't know. But generally what happens is nothing. I mean, you know, James says, are any of you sick? Let the elders pray for them and anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. Great. Well, that sounds easy. So we pray, anoint with oil. And the prayer of faith doesn't seem to do anything at all. And what we, what we do is, if we're not careful, we stop being evangelical at that point. Um, we start to come up with clever the theology to explain why the Bible doesn't work. You know, well, maybe God doesn't want to heal you because he's working on your character. Now, I don't doubt that God will work on your character through sickness. He'll use all things to, you know, for our good. But um, honestly, I mean, is there one example in the Gospels of Jesus saying no when someone asked him to heal them? Not one. The only time he waited... He, poor, he waited, was with Lazarus, but I mean, he raised him from the dead a few days later, so you can't really use that one, yeah? And, um, and, and so we start to become unbiblical because we start to construct theology to explain why the Bible doesn't work. And, um, and actually, Jesus, Jesus said this, didn't he? He told a parable about a persistent widow and an unjust judge in Luke 18, and, um, and, and in it, 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 actually, it actually explains, Luke actually explains what the parable is for. It says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. What does it mean if you have to pray and not give up? It means this. You ask God for something that God wants to happen, and the Bible says it will happen, and it doesn't happen. Otherwise, why would you have to persevere? You're not going to have to persevere if it happens straight away, are you? I mean, it's a complex world we live in, isn't it? Do you remember in, in Daniel chapter 10, the, the amazing prophet, man of God, reads in the Scriptures that Jeremiah said after 70 years the people of Israel are going to be released from exile in Babylon. So he starts praying the scriptures. It's 70 years, Lord. It's exactly what you said. 
time for it to happen. I'm going to identify with the sins. I'm going to, I'm going to repent. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. What happens? Nothing. So what does he do? He prays and fasts another day. What happens? Nothing. Third day. You know, I mean, I could carry on, but it would get boring. Day 21, he's praying and fasting, and an angel shows up with all of his glory, so he falls down as if he's dead, and says, hey, Daniel, God's really pleased with you. He sent me the moment, this is kind of my paraphrase, he sent me the moment that you prayed, but it's just taken me three weeks to get past the demonic prince of Persia. And it was only when Michael, the angel of Israel, came and helped me that I was able to get through. So here I am. Ta-da! I suppose he probably did something, yeah? I mean, I don't think we can build a big angelology on that passage, yeah? But it does tell us there's stuff going on that we don't know about, doesn't it? Yeah? We, we will pray for stuff that the Bible says will happen, and it won't happen. And we're in a good position because we know exactly what Jesus has told us to do. Persevere. We started really pressing in uh, in St. Thomas's for healing. We'd always prayed for healing, but we didn't see it that much, frankly. And, um, and we'd been challenged by a pastor who came to visit us this idea that Jesus never said no. And we spent about six months looking at the, at the Gospels to really check, is that true? And we came to the conclusion that it was. And I remember Mike Breen standing up in front of the church and saying, I've told you that if God doesn't heal you, it's, it might be that it's because he's got a, a different purpose and he, he doesn't want to heal you. He said, I don't really believe that anymore and I, I feel like I've taught you the wrong thing. I'm sorry. He said, I don't know whether you're going to get healed, this side of glory or not. In Hebrews 11, it's the hall of heroes, hall of faith, Half of them saw it fulfilled this side of glory. Half of them didn't. They're all heroes. So I can't tell you whether it's going to happen this side of glory or the other side of glory. But here's what I do know. If you're sick, we're going to have regular healing times. We had them Monday through Friday from 7 till 7.30. We're going to have regular prayer for healing. And you, keep, you set a rhythm you can do maybe once a week or whatever. And we're going to keep praying for you until one of these things happens. You get healed. You die. We die. Or Jesus comes back. How about that? Yeah? And then, and then at least when he comes back, when Jesus returns, he, he'll find us being faithful to what he told us to do. And, and, he, and we said, if in the process you die, we will honor you like a hero who's fallen in a battle, and we'll honor your family like the family of veterans who've fallen in the, in, in the battle, and you will be welcomed into heaven as a hero who's fallen in the battle against sickness, which is one of the fruits of Satan that we're called to get rid of. Yeah? And you'll immediately know healing if you die because as soon as you get into heaven, you'll experience it straight away anyway. And we, we went on this battle. And, um, you know, where's the limit of what we're supposed to see supernaturally? It's, I don't think Jesus is the one that puts the limits on. I mean, we all know John 14, don't we? I'll read it to you. Very truly I tell you, this is verse 12 to verse 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. So just think about the works of Jesus, raising the dead, walking on water, feeding thousands of people with a packed lunch, I mean, you name it, yeah? You'll be doing this. This is talking to you, yeah? So, you know, those are, that's, that's kind of a basic level. And then they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. It doesn't sound like Jesus is putting an awful lot of limits on this, does it? I think we're the ones that put the limits on. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. So there's this journey of following Jesus, and, um, and, and there's these three dimensions. There's, there's this upward thing of allowing his word to convict us, engaging with the word of God, and changing the way that we think, and stepping out on the word of God. Yeah? Stepping out on the word of God. Seek first his kingdom, and everything else will be added to you. It doesn't say, by the way, if you notice, it doesn't say find first his kingdom. 
It says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Um, God's not really looking for accuracy. I think he's just looking for motive. Yeah? I don't think like, you have to be super accurate. It's just, I'm totally seeking your kingdom, God. Well, you're looking totally in the wrong direction, but I'm going to bless you anyway, because I like you seeking my kingdom. Yeah? Do you see what I mean? That was a great comfort to us, because one of the things we said when we gave the money away was, what if we've got this wrong? And as we read that passage, we thought, if we got it wrong, he's still got our back, because we're seeking the kingdom first. Yeah? So change the way you think, step out in faith, the ways, learn to live as family with other believers, learn to do it together. Jesus sent two disciples even to go and get a donkey. So there's probably not much he wants you to do on your own, yeah? Perhaps apart from some solitary prayer, because that's copying him, yeah? So live as a family with other believers, and then reach out to others with supernatural power. And friends, I would say, you know, the society that we're living in now, there was a time even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where there was enough common agreement and understanding about basic truths that we could, we could get people into the kingdom through great apologetics. I, I think that era is almost over. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. I'm not saying we shouldn't be doing apologetics. But I think that, um, you know, Paul said that, um, that I didn't come to you with wise and eloquent words, but with demonstrations of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. And I think we're coming into a season where we have to be serious about the supernatural stuff because I don't think that we can, we can come up with arguments that persuade people anymore. People just think that we're bigots or think that we're crazy or think that we're nuts or think that it's just our thing and not their thing. I think we have to be able to demonstrate the power of God. And so we have to do that. And um, just as we come into land today, this is what I think all this stuff comes down to. It comes down actually to a call for Christianity to be more than a set of things that we bolt onto our life so that we can try and serve God and so that our life becomes a bit better. I think the enemy constantly is trying to sell us a lie that if you want to be a Christian, you can live the life that you were going to live, but just add a few bits on. And um, in Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and don't we want to know the power of his resurrection? That's what I've just been talking about. And participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, so, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And um, you weigh this, because this is a prophetic thing, but I, I, I said this to the guys at the seminar today, but I think it just bears repeating. Um, I'd always kind of felt, one day we're all going to see Jesus face to face, everybody in this room, if you know Jesus, you're going to see him face to face. It's on an actual day, it's an actual thing. It's not some vague idea. Isn't it going to be amazing? Yeah? Yeah? And I'd always said, when I see Jesus face to face, all I want is for him to say, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah? And now this is prophetic. You weigh it. But the, the other day, I felt the Lord, I was just thinking on that, and I felt the Lord spoke to me, and he said this, it might be all you want, Paul, but it's not all I want. I, I thought, sorry, Lord. And um, I was reminded of um, the TV show ba Band of Brothers. Do you remember that? It's about, follows the, the life of an airborne division, a true story through World War II. And, um, and, and basically, it, it, you have the dramatization that at the end of each, of each episode, it shows the real people and interviews them. And um, it's very traumatic to watch. Lots of them died. But at the end, they, they just interviewed the survivors. And it's really interesting what they say. That's why they named this series Band of Brothers. They say, it was the most traumatic time in our lives. It's left us all with a legacy of trauma, but most of us spent the rest of our lives looking back to that time too because we had a level of friendship and relationship 
that so far transcends anything else that we've ever had since, that um, it can't be compared because we were brothers in arms. We stood together. And um, I felt like the Lord reminded me of that. And he said, I don't want to just say good and faithful servant. I want to say, at last we're seeing each other brothers in arms, brothers and sisters in arms. We've been through all this stuff together. We've, we've been through it together. You've shared in my sufferings. We've fought the enemy. And now we can be together forever. And I thought, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? So here's what it comes down to, um, friends. And, and um, this is the core message that I felt the Lord wanted me to bring to you guys. So you can weigh this. But if we could just put this, the, that slide, the next slide up. Um, we're one with Jesus in covenant with him. And, um, and Jesus was crucified and we're called to join him. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. We're called to join him. There are three stages that we can go through in any area of our life. I've talked about money. I've talked about housing. It could be any other areas. It could be mission. It could be, there's, there's lots of different areas of our lives. There's three stages. Stage one, it's before the cross. You haven't yet gone to the cross. So housing before the cross is, Lord, I want the same things out of a house as everybody else does. I want a nice house that's going to be pretty, that's going to be comfortable to live in, in a nice area, convenient for the shops, convenient for the schools. I want it to be within my price range, but slightly nicer than I could normally get for my price range. And I'd like it to be near my friends. And Lord, I trust you, please give that to me. Yeah, the Christian approach to housing, if it's not crucified, yes? And do you know the weird thing is, God as a father loves to give good gifts to his children, so he probably will say, yeah, okay, let's go on the faith journey and I'll give it to you, yeah? Housing on the cross was... Um, was that couple that we just saw earlier when they moved to London. I, that really struck me. You know, you guys, I don't know where you are now, but you guys, you moved from your nice four-bedroom house into this pokey little, you know, flat or whatever it is. And you, what you did was you said, it's not our agenda, Lord, it's your agenda. It's not our agenda, it's your agenda. We are missionaries, we serve you. What do you want us to do with housing? Yeah? And here's the thing. The cross is not a destination. It's a path to something else. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And the path that the cross is, is a path to resurrection power. Really, in your life. The power that raised Christ operating in you all day, every day. In whatever area of your life you take to the cross, that's what you have access to. Well, we went there, and we thought it was going to really suck, but actually, we're totally happy there, we know it's our home, it's the home God has for us, and we're completely content, and now we're free to reach many people with the love of Jesus, which we weren't before. Do you see? For us, we're not getting, any, we're not getting there with our, with our mission, it's not doing anything, fine, no problem, we'll move house. It doesn't matter. And did you know, we, didn't, we love the house we're in now, we totally love the house we're in now. On, on paper, it doesn't look anything like as good as the other one, but we love it, it's the same story, we love it because it's the home that the Lord has for us. And the Lord is already blessing people in that house and blessing us in that house. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And here's my question as we finish tonight. What's the, what's the area of your life that God is putting his finger on next? where you know that though you love God, though you honor God, frankly, honestly, you're still living that area of your life for yourself. You're not, it's not, that doesn't mean you're necessarily sinning, 
but you haven't turned it over to his agenda. That, that passage that we were read prophetically, which really made me think that that was really from the Lord. Joshua's there, and the commander of the host's armies is standing there, and he says, are you for me? Are you for us? Are you for, your, are you for our enemies? And the commander of the Lord's army said, I haven't come to take sides, I've come to take over. Yeah? And Joshua took his shoes off and knelt down. And I think there's areas of our life where we're saying to God, are you on my side, God? And God's saying, I haven't come to take sides, I've come to take over. Will you put this to death? I'm not asking you to do that because I want you to suffer. I'm asking you to do it because I want to resurrect you. I want resurrection power in your life. You know that thing that we're talking about with the healing, where we, we, did, it, um, we, we, we did it 7 till 7.30, Monday through Friday. We did, it, um, we did it for a year. We didn't really see any breakthrough. We did it for two years. We didn't really see any breakthrough. We did it for three years. We didn't see any breakthrough. It's one of those that's going to get boring again. By the time we got to about seven years, we were beginning to see quite a lot of people get healed. My personal, I was involved in all of that. I was on the team. We, I, we were doing it at least four days a week. It was grueling. It was terrible. It was hard. There was one guy who had multiple sclerosis, and he asked me to pray for him every single day. And I tried to avoid his glance, and I tried to pray for someone else who had a headache, and he made me pray for him every day. And I prayed for him three or four days a week for 18 months, and we saw nothing happen. And then one day God said, pray, pray against the symptoms. And I said, what are the symptoms? He said, well, I've got very weak legs. I've got pins and needles in my hands, and I can't see through one eye. And so I knelt down and said, Lord, please make his legs strong. That's all I said. And he, I said, how is it doing? And he went, 18 months we've been praying. He went, they're completely strong. I said, quick, while it's working, let's pray for the other stuff. <laughs> you know, what about your eyes? And he went, well, this side, oh, no, that's fine. Oh, my eyes are fine. I said, what about your hands? He said, no, I've got pins and needles. Prayed for his hands. He walked out of there without a symptom. Why was it 18 months? I don't know. But, you know, now my experience is in that one area, I don't always see people get healed. But, uh, you know, Hebrews 11. Some, you know, we don't know when we're going to see that hope um, fulfilled. We will all one day. But, I mean, I've seen, I think, five people healed in the last week. I mean, I see people healed all the time. Why is that? Because it's resurrection life that you get from crucifixion. What's the area that God's calling you to be crucified in? If you're going to be a missionary in your neighborhood, in your, in your workplace, wherever God's called you to, what's the area that God's calling you to go to the cross? Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you love us uh, too much to allow us to miss out on the resurrection power of Jesus. And we thank you for that reason, that you call us to be crucified with Christ. And we want to confess to you, Lord, that we've got lots of areas of our lives where we just haven't done that yet. If we know you, we've done it in some areas of our life, but there's lots of areas where we haven't. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, you'd show us now uh, if there's any area that we need to make a decision about. And I'm going to ask you to stand up if you... Um, there's, there's two things I want to pray for. And um, if Mike or any of the team want to come up and you've got other things to add, then feel, feel free, obviously. Um, but I want you, first of all, there's, there's something about a public confession of something which is really important. If you know that God's on your case right now and there's a specific thing you can identify where you're thinking, okay, I've got to go to the cross in that area, let's just stand up now. We're going to pray for you.